Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to start at verse 7, not verse 17, as your bulletins state. And uh, you can read along then as I follow along as I read. So, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, obviously referring to the law, if that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And may God bless this reading of his word this morning. Will you pray with me as we come to these words of Scripture? Our Father and our God, we come to this passage in your word today, and we recognize several things when we come to it. Father, to me, these words that Paul wrote prove that that your word is your word, that men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote these words down and didn't make them up of their own accord, because no man could utter what this passage utters. And we also recognize, Father, that we need your help to understand what these words mean. And not only to understand, but, Father, to really embrace the meaning and the message that is proclaimed to us here through your Holy Spirit by the words of the Apostle Paul. God, we want to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to be built up and encouraged and comforted and exhorted and strengthened and made glad because of your word. And so, Holy Spirit, be with us here today. Illuminate the truth of your word to our minds and our hearts, and help us, Father, not just to understand, but to be transformed and to walk according to your ways. We love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after Christmas, where we're so focused so pointedly on the glory of the incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. After Christmas, I decided to reread one of my favorite 
works from one of my favorite authors. The author is the Puritan writer John Owen, and the work is his beautiful magisterial work called Meditations on the Glory of Christ. If you haven't read that, read it. Everybody says you've got to read John Owen, and everybody tries to start with things that are really hard to read in John Owen, like the death of death and the death of Christ, or the mortification of sin. Those are great too, and if you can, read them. But first, just read the glory of Christ. It's not hard, and it is glorious and beautiful. At one point in that work, he says this, he says, Make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. I was reading that and it made me want to meditate with you all today on this awesome passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which is all about the glory of Christ and all about the life-altering impact that being exposed to the glory of Christ has on our lives as the people of God. Now that word glory is the Greek word doxa. We get our word doxology. For example, from that Greek word, a doxology is a a, a song that ascribes glory to God and then celebrates His glory. The word glory, doxa, is used by the Apostle Paul 12 times just in these few verses here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So clearly, glory is the key word in this passage, it's the central point that Paul is making, is all about the glory of God and what happens to God's people when they get exposed to the glory of God. And what Paul is teaching here and revealing and the message that he has, it's all couched in a a contrast between the glory of God during the Old Testament ministry of Moses. He calls it the ministry of the law. And the new covenant ministry of righteousness, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And to understand what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 3, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. And look at several chapters in the book of Exodus as, as kind of a backdrop to this passage. So that's what I want to do before we even touch any of the verses here in 2 Corinthians. Turn back to Exodus And we're going to look at several verses and several chapters beginning in Exodus chapter 32. So turn back there with me today. Exodus chapter 32 as we get started here. Now the history that's recorded in the book of Exodus and especially in this part of the book of Exodus, it's it's probably familiar already to most of you here today. The people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt in Egypt for more than 400 years until God raised up Moses to confront the Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel to freedom in the promised land of Canaan. And on the way there, after they had been freed from slavery and as they were passing through the wilderness, God led them by a manifestation of His glory which appeared as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we call that the Shekinah 
glory of God. Now, the Hebrew word Shekinah means to settle or to dwell, to abide, to to take up residence. And that's what God had done with His people. He had come, the invisible God, to take up a visible and tangible by way of a physical manifestation of His presence, residence with His people, Shekinah. That's what's going on in Exodus. That's what that word means. It's the, it's the manifestation of the visible glory of God as a great pillar of, of cloud and fire. That wasn't some natural phenomenon that was going on in the world. Like the so-called scholars on the Discovery Channel want you to believe it was. Right? You watch this garbage every year all throughout the year on the Discovery Channel. There's a program called Exodus Decoded. Ooh, they've got the secrets to Exodus. They, they can explain all these mysterious things. And they say there was a volcano off in the distance and it was blowing smoke and at night they could see the lava and, the, and that's how they somehow magically found their way to the promised land. And that's not what this was at all. The pillar of fire... The, the cloud that led them by day was the manifest, visible presence of the glory of the eternal God as He appeared to them, as He was with them, as He was abiding in their midst and leading them down to Mount Sinai where that burning cloud of His visible glory settled on the mountain, settled, Shekinah, on the mountain. And that caused the whole mountain, right, to quake violently and smoke. And the skies burst forth with peals of thunder and lightning because the very glory of the Most High God had come to dwell and abide in the presence of His people and the earth could not contain it. And, and see, the purpose of God dwelling with His people in that manifest glory was this. It was that their ongoing exposure to His glory and experience of His glory and holiness, that that would purify them. That it would purge them of sin so that they would be to Him a a kingdom of holy priests before God. So, way back in Exodus 19, you don't need to turn there, but this sets up where we're going to go here in Exodus. Way back in Exodus 19 in verse 5, God said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was the stipulation. That was the condition of this covenant that was, God was, was making with the people through Moses. If they obeyed, if they were holy, then they would be a kingdom of priests to God. Because if they obeyed, then His glory would be present with them. The radiance of His holiness would, would be in their midst and it would purify them and cleanse them and sanctify them. And then in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, as Moses was getting ready to go up onto the mountain, he said to the people, don't fear, because God has come in all of His glory. It's scary looking. It's fearsome. But don't fear, because He hasn't come to destroy you. He's come to refine you, Moses says. So that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. So that's, see, that's what the presence of God and all of His holiness was supposed to do. It was supposed to refine them and fill them with a holy reverence for God that would purify them and keep them from sinning so that when they obeyed Him, 
they would become to him a, a kingdom of priests who could mediate this glory of God to all of the nations of the earth around them, and they would be the light of God's glory among the nations, so that through them the word of God and the salvation of God could spread to the ends of the earth, right? That should have been what happened. But it's not. Look at verse 1 of Exodus 32. You know this story. What happened when Moses went up on the mountain? He's up there, he's receiving the law from God, and the people got impatient. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up and make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We can't trust Moses. We can't trust the God of Moses. He's probably gone. He's not coming back. We need new gods, they said. And, and so we can see just how hard their hearts were towards God, who had been so merciful, so supernaturally powerful in delivering them from slavery in Egypt and displayed His, his power and His glorious presence to them. And now that he wants to make covenant with them, the first thing they do, the first step they take is to break the covenant from the outset while Moses is still up on the mountain getting the tablets of the law. So you know this story. In verses 2-7, through Aaron breaks down and concedes and gathers up gold from all of the people and fashions an idol, a golden calf for them to worship because Aaron felt pressure and took upon himself a strategy of appeasement. And appeasement is always a devastating error, a deadly sin when it comes to worshiping God. So in verse 7, God let Moses know what was going on in the camp of the people down below at the base of the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, you got to go down there because your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. And in verse 9, God said, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's a, that's a euphemism for stubborn. They're unbending, they're stubborn. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God's literally saying I'm so angry with these people that I could just destroy them all and just start over with Moses. But in verse 11, Moses interceded. Moses implored the Lord to be merciful because that's who God is and God was merciful and God spared the people. And even then, receiving mercy, not being devastated by God's wrath, even then they remained hard in their hearts and they continued on and on to sin against God. And that made Moses angry. And Moses got so angry that he, he, when he went down and saw what was going on, he smashed the stone tablets with the law written on them, smashed them to pieces. And so very visibly, very literally, the the covenant, the tablets themselves, they were broken from the outset because the people's hearts were, were so rock hard with sin. 
So the question in this portion of Scripture, the question becomes this. When they've been so stiff-necked and so rebellious and quick to betray God, when their sin is so rampant and explicit, how can God's glory continue to dwell in the midst of this sinful people without destroying them? That's the question. So flip over to chapter 33. After they've sinned, worshiping the golden calf, God says, verse 1, chapter 33, Depart. Go up from here. They're at Mount Sinai. Go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, go to the land which I swore to Abraham. Head to the promised land now. I I swore it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, To your offspring will I give this land. I will send an angel before you. Notice that. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I, God says, will not go with you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Wow. God said, look, I'm going to be faithful to the promise that I made to Abraham. And I'm going to give this stiff-necked, stubborn, sinful people the land I promised to give them. So you better get going. But I'm not coming with you. Because if I do, then the holiness of my glory will incinerate this sinful, stubborn, unrepentant, unbelieving people. And Moses knew, there's no way this is going to work. We can't go without God. We can't go alone. Look at verse 15. He says to God, If if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us that makes us distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God can't live apart from His people. God's people can't live apart from their God because God's presence with them is the only thing that distinguishes them from every other nation, all the pagan peoples of the earth, and it's the only thing that can, that can purify them, that can cleanse them, that can make them different than all of the other idolatrous, immoral nations. And Moses is saying, I've got absolutely no desire to lead this people into the promised land without you, God. Without you being in our midst. So there's a dilemma here, see? God's glory has to dwell with the people in order for them to be purified from their sins. But because of their sin, now God's glory cannot be in their midst. How do you resolve that? What's the solution to that dilemma? What's Moses to do? Look at verse 18 very closely of Exodus 33. And this is, this is where whispers of 2 Corinthians 3 start to waft through the air. Knowing this dilemma, knowing that God's glory cannot dwell in the midst of this sinful people, but also knowing that it must dwell in the midst of this sinful people, if they are going to be a holy nation, Moses says to God, please God, 
Show me your glory. Expose me to your glory on behalf of these people. So see, we know this story about God hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock and passing by and Moses catching a a glimpse of God's glory. We know this story, and, and a lot of times I think we think of it like this, like Moses was just really curious and God was like, hey, sure, I'll show you my glory, and so Moses caught a glimpse, right? This had nothing to do with curiosity, and Moses is not asking to see God's glory for Moses' benefit. What Moses is trying to do here as the covenant mediator of this sinful people, as the one who intercedes between God and the sinful people, what he's trying to do is experience a manifestation of the presence of God's glory on their behalf as the solution to this dilemma. He's saying, since the only thing that can sanctify and cleanse them is the presence of God's holiness, but because in their sin God can't be present without destroying them, shine your glory on me, God, so that through me you might purify your people. Well, God obviously understands all of this and knows all of this, and and this whole episode is not teaching God what to do. It's, It's Him leading Moses along to realize what to do, and so God agrees to this and tells Moses, Moses, even you can't see the full expression of my glory. That would destroy even you. So he has Moses hide in the cleft of the rock and as this visible, radiant manifestation of the the full effulgence of God's glory passes by, Moses is allowed a glimpse from behind. And then, right, what happens next? God re-inscribed the law on new tablets of stone He reenacted the covenant, reinstated it because they'd broken it before. Moses takes the two new stone tablets with the law down from the mountain, this renewed covenant agreement and requirement, and look all the way down at chapter 34, all the way to chapter 34, and look all the way down at verse 29. And look at what it says. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two new tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, like literally glowing because he had been talking with God, because he had been exposed to the glory of God. But Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to Moses. See what had happened? God had manifested His glory to Moses and and it was literally radiating off of Moses' face, visibly, literally shining and glowing with the glory of God and it scared the people to death. Why? Why were they afraid of God's glory now that Moses had acted as an intermediary and, and had been merciful and God had reinstated His covenant with them? It's because they knew their sin. They knew their hearts were hard. They knew they'd blown it. Everything had changed between them and God, and they knew it. They were supposed to obey, but they hadn't. They'd broken the law. They'd broken the covenant. They were supposed to become the mediators, the priests who mediated salvation to the nations of the world, but now they were the ones who needed priests. They were the ones who needed saving. This is why God in their midst would institute the sacrificial system and raise up the Levites 
for their sin. They were guilty and they knew it. So when they saw the glory of God's holiness shining off of Moses' face, they were scared to death. They were terrified that all of that blazing holy glory of God would incinerate them, would obliterate them. Because they knew that as sinners, the presence of God's glory means their death. Just like God had said in chapter 33, if I come with you, my glory will consume you. And just this this bit of it glowing off of Moses' face was enough to, to terrify them. So look down at verse 32. The people came near to Moses, and he spoke the law to them. He commanded them all that God had spoken, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, what did he do? He put a veil over his glowing face. He veiled the glory, see, in order to protect the stiff-necked sinful people. Verse 34, when... Ever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, in order to face the people and talk to the people and tell them what God had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face was shining. So Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went back in to speak with God. So Moses is mediating the glory of God to the people by veiling his glowing face which allowed the glory of God to be with the people without destroying the people. So the veil that Moses wore, see, was an act of mercy. But at the same time, the fact that he had to wear a veil was a statement of judgment because of the hardness of the people's hearts. So, here's the whole point. The veil on Moses' face protected Israel from being destroyed by the purity of God's glory. And at the same time, it kept them, because it had to be veiled, it kept them from being transformed by the power of God's glory. And that would be the case throughout the Old Covenant. From the very beginning, they're separated from, there's a veil, they're separated from the transforming presence and power of the glory of God. First at Mount Sinai, then behind Moses' veiled face. Then, remember, in the tabernacle, in the temple, where the glory moves in to dwell on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, and it all had to be sealed off from the people by a veil. And then, of course, their sin and their idolatry, which continued, caused them to be utterly separated from God's presence when they were dragged off into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And that horrifying picture in the book of Ezekiel of the glory of God coming out gives me goosebumps of the Holy of Holies and hovering over the temple complex as if God's looking back with regret and then out the east gate and over the Mount of Olives and gone. The Shekinah departed and would never come back to that temple which helps us to see, right, how necessary an entirely new kind of covenant was that would go way beyond God's law written on tablets of stone and way beyond having God's glory hidden behind a veil. We need need a new covenant 
where God's Spirit would write God's law on people's hearts directly. And a covenant where nothing would separate God from His people. And where the glory of God's holiness would no longer need to be veiled, but would shine in all of its fullness and all of its radiance and beauty and holiness in such a way that it would progressively start to sear away the hardness of our hearts and transform us into the very image of that glory. 2 Corinthians 3. Let's go there. You see where we're at? Turn back with me. With all of this Old Testament background in mind, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, that's the law, that's the old covenant, if that ministry came with so much glory that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, and all of that was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You see it? If the Old Covenant ministry where the law was just written on these external tablets of stone and where the hearts of the people remained hard and sinful so much that Moses had to veil his face, if that ministry came with enough glory that the people of God couldn't even look at it, how much more glory must the New Covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit have? So verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. That old covenant is gone. That old mosaic covenant is is wiped off the face of the earth. And the new covenant has come in Christ's blood. And it is so much more glorious... For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent, and he means eternally permanent, have glory. If the temporary, shadowy, old covenant that's become obsolete, if it came with glory, you can just imagine how much more glory the permanent, better, all-sufficient, eternal, unbreakable, new covenant ministry is wrapped up in. In verse 12, since we have such a hope, such a, such a living hope that these new covenant promises of renewed hearts filled with God's Spirit who forgives us and cleanses us and writes His law on our hearts and justifies us, since this new covenant has come, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. See, the the veil protected them from God's wrath, but also kept them from being transformed by God's glory. Their minds and their hearts remained hardened all throughout the Old Covenant, even down to Paul's day. Like like 1,500 years after Moses, verse 14. For even to this day, when the Jewish people who don't believe in Christ, when they read the Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted. And so the Word of God and the glory of God revealed there does nothing for them. 
Because only through Christ is the veil taken away. So yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. And they stay hard. So even in Paul's day, his, his Jewish countrymen who have rejected Christ, their hearts are just as hard as their ancestors' hearts were at Mount Sinai. They're indifferent towards God. And that keeps them separated from the glory and the holiness that would transform them. So much so that they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is their Messiah. They, they push that truth down. We don't want Him to be our Savior and our Messiah. They suppress the very truth that would lift the veil and set them free. But, Paul says, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, but, and this is the contrast between those who are still stuck behind the veil of the Old Covenant and those who have inherited the promises of the New Covenant. Here's the contrast. When one turns to the Lord, to Christ, the veil is removed. What does that mean? That means you can gaze upon the full effulgence of God's glory without worrying about being destroyed by His holiness because you have been given life and salvation and forgiveness and justification and freedom in Christ. And the fullness of God's glory can then start to transform you and conform you into the very image of His glory from one level of glory to the next. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So I want you to notice... In these verses, Paul makes three very, very important contrasts between the ministry of the Old Covenant and the ministry of the New Covenant. The first one is this. The Old Covenant, verse 7, was a ministry of death. It was a ministry of the law, but unto death. All the law did was show people the sin that's in their hearts, stir up that sin and cause them to rebel against God and bring them under condemnation. The old covenant was a ministry of death, while the new covenant is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. The law written on tablets of stone only revealed sin and brought condemnation for sin, but the Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts and heals sin and brings forgiveness. That's the difference. The second contrast is that this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit comes with, this is mind-blowing, comes with even greater glory than the old covenant came with. That's what verses 7 through 11 here are all about in 2 Corinthians 3. You think about that. Think about that. Picture in your mind's eye what was going on back at Mount Sinai with the earth shaking and the sky split apart and thunder roaring and lightning flashing because the great fiery cloud of God's glory was covering the mountain and Moses' face was literally glowing with it after just catching a glimpse of it. Think about that glory and the awesome display of it that was there in the book of Exodus and realize Paul is saying by the infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the new covenant that we are members of by, by the shed blood of Jesus has far exceeded and surpassed all of that old covenant glory that was visible 
in a physical way because of the results that God's glory accomplishes in the new covenant. Which brings up the third and the most important contrast that Paul makes here between the old covenant ministry of death and the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. In the old covenant, the the blazing, radiant, holy glory of God that He was visibly manifesting to the people in order to purify them and cleanse them had to be hidden behind a veil. And so their hearts remained hard. In the new covenant, the veil is taken away. It's removed. And so in the new covenant, the manifestation of God's glory accomplishes what it didn't and couldn't in the old covenant. And what it does is it cleanses us and it sets us free from the power and the consequences of our sin when we by faith turn to the Lord. The veil is lifted away. We're exposed, not visibly, but even more profoundly to the full effulgence of the glory of God. How? Because the Holy Spirit of God who manifested Himself in that cloud of visible glory that settled, right, Shekinah, came to dwell upon the mountain, has now descended upon you and taken up residence in your heart. Shekinah. Through the Holy Spirit who has made us alive in Christ Jesus, who has indwelt us, who has united us to the risen glorious holy person of Jesus there is more glory there is no separation anymore there is no more distance that needs to be maintained between you and God he's in you and by that indwelling presence you can ascend up into the heavenly throne room and draw near to the throne of God because it's a throne of grace And you can stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. And say, I have need of your grace. And God says, I have all the grace you need. You don't have to wait at the bottom of the hill for someone to go up on your behalf. You don't have to live in terror of coming close to the place where God is like they did. You can draw near with boldness, with confidence, with hope, with great joy. Because as Paul says in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. Hopefully your your translation has a capital S on Spirit there. The Holy Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from condemnation. Because the glory of God no longer threatens to consume you. It hasn't dimmed. It hasn't diminished. It hasn't become less than it was. In fact, your exposure to it is far greater than that that the Israelites experienced in Exodus. But you have freedom where they had fear. No condemnation. Because by the blood of Christ, you are fully forgiven for every speck of sin. There is freedom from the tyranny and the, and the slavery of sin because the Holy Spirit has filled you and given you a new heart, uniting you to Christ, who is your life and who defines our lives in Himself. 
And he's written God's law on our hearts, not on outward stone tablets. And he's working every day to transform us into people who love God with all our hearts eventually, more and more of our hearts day by day, all our minds, all our souls, all our strength. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And He's not far off from us. He's in us. All of the life-giving, heart-renewing, sin-destroying glory of God is forever abiding. Shekinah, this is the reality of your life. You can't see it with your eyes. But remember, faith is the assurance of the things that are unseen. And the things that are unseen are so much better so much more important, so much more significant, so much more powerful than anything that you can see with your physical eyes in this world. It's so much better to see by faith than by sight. The Shekinah glory of God is dwelling within you. And so, verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord in Christ, in His Word, as we commune with Him, as we worship Him, as we draw near to Him and the throne of grace in prayer, being transformed into the same image of His holy glory from one degree of glory to another. Not all at once, but from one degree of glory to the other, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the way He does it. This is how He works. This is His plan. To daily and constantly and regularly expose you to the radiance of His glory in a way that would continually melt away the sinful aspects of your heart, your life, this fleshly body where sin remains, and make you more and more and more, step by step by step, to be conformed to the image of His own glory through faith in Christ. Well, it's so wonderful, isn't it? Now that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all our sin, and so we're forgiven. God says 100% already. Sin remains in you, but you're already forgiven for all of it. You're already justified. All of the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you, accounted to you. It's in your account spiritually before God. So God says, I require perfect holiness. He looks at the ledger and He says, in Christ you have perfect holiness. That's your standing before God. That's your position before the Holy One. Now He says, I will expose you daily to my glory so that your condition more and more and more and more and more comes to match that perfect position. That's how it is. Now that we have the freedom to draw near, now that He has drawn near to us, now that there is no fear but only freedom, now that He abides in our hearts, now we are exposed to the glory of His holiness with unveiled faces and His glory is doing what it couldn't do while it was hiding behind a veil. It's doing what it had done to the Apostle Paul himself when Christ encountered him on on the road to Damascus. With His glory, Paul's life was never the same. He'd go on to be a servant of Christ until his death. And every step along the way, he'd say, man, I still have a lot of sin that needs to be conquered. I'm not there yet. Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I still am. 1 Timothy chapter 1, second to the last book he wrote, from prison. And he knows this is it. 
I'm not getting out of this one. My life has come to an end. I've been poured out. I've served all I can serve. And it's a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. At the end of his life, Paul says, you know, the worst sinner I know is me. The sin that bothers me the most still is my own. He's, it doesn't happen all at once. From one degree of glory to the next, to the next, to the next. Every day, every moment of your life, as you are constantly exposed to this glory of Christ, you with unveiled face are being conformed more and more into the image of the glory of God. It's changing us, transforming us. Like exposing photographic paper to light, it changes it. Like exposing wood to intense heat and fire, it changes the composition of the wood. Hearts and minds and souls and lives that are exposed to the glory of Christ, to the glory of His divine holiness, they're changed and they're changing So stay exposed to the glory of Christ. See, sinful hearts, unrepentant, unbelieving hearts and lives will be consumed and destroyed by the glory of God's holiness, just like the Israelites would have been and were. That's why there needed to be a veil, a separation. But hearts and lives that are forgiven and set free from sin and death and covered by the glorious blood of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, those those whose hearts and lives are exposed to the glory of, of Christ's holiness aren't destroyed. They're refined. They're purged. They're purified. They're cleansed. They're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. The radiance of the glory of God and Christ incinerates sin, it it obliterates sin, it creates righteousness, it creates holiness in sin's place. Beholding the glory of Christ with unveiled face, we're being transformed. Bit by bit, day by day, thought by thought, choice by choice, word by word, attitude by attitude, feeling even by feeling. Like a goldsmith, the Holy Spirit of God within us is exposing the sin of our hearts to the blast furnace of His glory, burning away all the impurities, refashioning, reshaping our hearts into the image of His glory. And so this is the sort of two-sided reality of the Christian life. On the one hand, sin never again can separate you from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And on the other hand, sin still remains in us, doesn't it? In these fleshly bodies that have yet to be fully redeemed, sin still remains. And as a Christian, you know that this morning. You know what your sin is today. You know the places in your life that need to be cleansed and purified and transformed. So what do you do when you come into contact with that reality? When you realize sin remains in me. I don't love God like I should. I don't love my wife like I should. I don't read my Bible like I should. I don't worship like I should. I don't pray nearly as much as I should. I don't cherish Christ as much as... What do you do? Don't let it paralyze you with discouragement or depression. God knows exactly how much sin remains in you better than you do. It's no surprise to God. God knows 
And He sent His Son to die for it. And His Holy Spirit is working to change it through a specific means, like the Word and like prayer and like worship. All you need to do is continue daily to expose yourself to the means through which the glory of God is operating in your life. Trust Him. You can go near to His glory and not be consumed. Trust Him. Submit to Him. Yield to His work in you. Experience the great freedom of exposing your heart to the radiance of God's glory without the fear of condemnation. Stand in the midst of the Holy God, naked as it were, and say, God, here's how I've sinned today. And no, He will not destroy you, but He will start to purify you. Don't hide your sin. Certainly don't try to change it in your own strength. Well, I guess i got to work, work more and try harder to, to get this under control or else God will destroy me. No, He won't. Certainly don't ignore your sin and your pride and pretend it's not there or not a big deal. It is a big deal. It was a big enough deal that Jesus had to die. It's a big enough problem that you do not have any power in yourself to be able to deal with your sin or do anything about it. The only power is the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the regular exposure to the glory of Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And you know how to expose yourself to the glory of God, right? If you're freezing cold and there's a furnace, you know what to do. Don't stand a mile away from the furnace and go, oh, what am I going to do? I'm cold. Maybe I can warm myself up before I'm worthy to go to the furnace. (laughs) Go to the furnace now. It's the only thing that can warm you up. You know the sources of exposure to the glory of Christ. You're exposed to it in the Word of God because it's living and it's active. It's full of life-transforming power. As the glory of Christ is revealed and proclaimed, His his glorious, holy, divine nature, His incarnation, His merciful, gentle, lowly kindness to us, His high priestly work for us, all the eternal blessings of heaven that are ours in Christ Jesus, the everlasting inheritance, Romans chapter 8, that is guaranteed to us through faith in Him, how all the fullness of God is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. God's Word is absolutely, cover to cover, chock full of unfathomably glorious truth and power revealed and proclaimed in the glory of Christ. So go stand next to that furnace all the time. And don't be surprised where if you wander away from it, you start to get cold again. You're exposed to God's glory here today, every Lord's Day, as we obey Him and gather together in His name for worship and heed His summons to assemble and ascend together to the heavenly tabernacle and sing praises to Him because of His forgiving grace and to receive grace from Him through the Word and through our song and through our fellowship and at the table in these specific ways that He's ordained to give grace through. You're exposed to the glory of Christ in prayer as you draw near to Him, as you you kneel before His throne of grace communing with Him as the person who He is and crying out to Him that you need Him and not letting the devil tempt you to say in your flesh also to say, I'm not worthy to draw near to Him. No, you've got to trust Him that you are in Him. You need His grace every day, right? I do. 
I don't just need His grace on Sunday. And I certainly don't just need His grace on Sunday between 10.30 and 12.15. My wife can tell you that. I say this stuff all the time and it's so true. And I want you to hear it. There are Sunday afternoons at about 1.30 p.m. where my wife is going, were you listening to your sermon? (laughs) I need the grace all the time. Oh, I'll tell you this. This is to my shame. This was on a Saturday night, late, before church. And I was sitting in my chair and I was stewing and grumping and just in a fleshly, sinful hole. And my wife said, we better go pray. And I said, that's the last thing I want to do. But we did. Because you can't wait till you feel like doing it, to do it, to draw near to God, to commune with Him, to expose yourself to His glory. And you better know that when you don't feel like doing it is when you need to do it the most. And so we went and prayed. And I, I, I felt like I was just in a spiritual block of ice. And we prayed and it just sloughed off. And then I came and worshipped with you all and it was glorious. See, if these, if these things aren't regular, 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 regular practices in our lives and you're not regularly exposing yourself to the radiance of God's glory, don't be surprised if your soul is restless and not at peace. Owen says in the glory of Christ, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith regularly, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are very apt to be filled with troubles and fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions, lusts, temptations, anxieties. And by these, our thoughts are filled with chaos and darkness and confusion. Say amen. Amen. You know that. You've been in that spot. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace because to be spiritually minded is peace. Romans 8.6 If you're not regularly exposing your mind and your soul and your life to the radiance of the glory of Christ, don't be surprised with the coldness and the iciness that that you may experience in your soul sometimes. If you go out to your car on a frigid, frozen winter morning early and the windshield is all iced over and you can't see through it to drive, what do you do? Well, you can turn on your defroster, right? They've built into your car a feature that given time, progressively, slowly, will blow enough hot air up onto your windshield that it will thaw out that ice. Sometimes if it's a clear morning and the sun's coming up, I'll just kind of back my car out and aim it at the sun, not the defroster, just the sun, and let the sun that's rising up sit there with a warm cup of coffee and just watch the radiance of the sun hit the frozen windshield and start to melt that ice and it drips down and it starts to slough off and the windshield starts to clear away. It takes time, requires some patience, but it's a beautiful thing to do in the morning and it makes me think about my soul and the coldness that sometimes has my soul frosted over. And how the glory of Christ, the radiance of Christ in His Word, at the foot of His throne of grace, in His church, with you people, in His presence, always thaws, always warms, always encourages, 
always inspires, always increases my soul's longing for the glory of Christ in my life from one degree of glory to the next. Amen? Will you pray with me today? And let's, uh, let's give thanks to God for supplying us with the means even more powerful than the rising sun by which we may be exposed to the glory of Christ that gives peace to our souls and that transforms us. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us will continue to convict us of our need to draw near and will help us to know the freedom that we have, even though we're sinners, to do that, to draw near and let the radiance of that glory accomplish its work in us today. Let's, let's pray and then we're going to sing all glory be to Christ and we're going to sing it loud. Jason's going to make sure of that. Our God and our Father, how we love you this morning. And we praise you for the freedom that there is in the spirit of Christ to whom we are united, by whom we are forgiven, in whom we have life in spite of ourselves and not because of anything that we could do to earn it. Father, I pray every single one of us here this morning who says, but I'm not worthy, will say, that's true, but in Christ who is worthy, I have been indwelt by the spirit of God and the veil has been lifted from my heart and there is freedom. And there is life and there is glory in my midst. And so, Father, may we revel in the glory of Christ together today and as we go from here. And may you warm us and may you use us and may you transform us and give us confidence to conquer and mortify sin in our lives. And to always draw near knowing that you are kind, that you are our Father, and that you always receive us and that you never condemn us. Father, may we bask in the radiance of your glory and love this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Page 12. If this song is new to you, you'll recognize the tune this day after New Year's. It is the tune of Old Lang Syne, which is a weird, bizarre Scottish thing. Uh, I don't understand the words of it. These words are much better. So we're going to redeem the tune of Old Lang Syne and sing all glory be to Christ together. Let's stand and sing.